There is a scene at the end of the first Avengers movie when Dr. Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Hulk, shows up, he sees the destruction of the city happening all around him, and he says, so, all this seems horrible. As the battle intensifies, Captain America says to him, this would be a good time to get angry, meaning we need the Hulk. To which Dr. Banner replies, that's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. I love that movie. I, I, I love that scene. I, it's a fun scene that turns into him becoming the Hulk, and he just takes down this massive spaceship. But the phrase, I'm always angry, that stays with me. Because honestly, it's what I see in a lot of people. I'm talking about even people who are dealing with, with what's called righteous anger. Righteous anger means anger over the right things. But there can still be this compounding, building pressure that before long keeps us from being able to see anything except what's wrong, except what's lacking, except what's not the way it's supposed to be. And if we're not careful, very quickly, the cry of our heart becomes, so this all seems horrible. But the truth is, you're not the Hulk. What I mean is, in reality, our bodies are not meant to bear the weight of such anger. We will not survive that pressure of I'm always angry. I want you to hear this quote, Frederick um, Buchner, he is a theologian. This is, this is how he describes this process. He says, of all the seven deadly sins... Anger is possibly the most fun. Listen to how he describes it. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you're given and the pain you're giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, however, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And when I read that, it's like, yeah, that's true. Come on, you know that about anger. To feast on anger is literally to choose to eat away at your own soul. And so the question we're raising today is, is there a right way to deal with anger? Some anger is right, some anger is not. Regardless, is there a right way to deal with it that, that keeps my soul from being chewed up and spit out by the pressure of anger? The good news is that you don't just need my opinion on this today. The good news is that the Bible does not dodge this issue. 
And today we're going to look at a psalm that is often categorized as one of the what's called imprecatory psalms. Now, it's called an imprecatory psalm because the, the, the author imprecates. What that, what that means is he calls for God's judgment and destruction on his enemies. In other words, in an imprecatory psalm, it's a prayer about all the evil stuff you wish might happen to those who are hurting you. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to start at the end of the psalm, Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. I bet that one never came up in children's church. Like, whoa. I mean, that, that is severe. What's he saying here? He's saying happy is the one who sees your, seizes your infants, seizes your babies, and dashes them against the rocks. I'm going to call that unimaginably offensive. I mean, I, I, I understand anger, but that statement is so much against the grain of everything the Bible teaches us about how to treat people. Wishing for an innocent infant to be thrown against the rocks, that is horrific. Who is that sick? Let's back up. And find the answer to our question. So verse 1, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, I've told you several weeks ago, when, we, when you hear that word Zion, it, it often refers to the, the, the hill in Jerusalem where, where the, the temple would be. And so when, when you hear Zion, it sometimes is synonymous with, with thinking about Jerusalem. So the writer here sits by the rivers of Babylon, but, but he's weeping and he's remembering Jerusalem. Babylon was the destroyer of Jerusalem. Uh, 587 BC, they come in and they just wipe out the city. The history is they, they starve them for about 18 months. They, they invade the city and then just burn everything that is valuable to the people. They burn their homes. They burn the temple. They, they begin to slaughter the people. Those that were left, they marched them across the, the, the Fertile Crescent and now they hold them captive in Babylon. That's the context from which the psalmist writes. Verse 2. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. I would describe this sort of like a prison guard with a machine gun saying to the captives in a concentration camp, sing us a happy song. 
We have starved you. We have captured you. We have tortured you. The psalmist is writing out of a circumstance where he has seen them destroy his home. They have destroyed his temple. They have destroyed his city. They, they, have, they have slaughtered most likely his wife. They have slaughtered his children. And now they say, sing us a happy song. Verse four, how can we sing the songs of the Lord when in a foreign land? If I ever forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. In other words, you're asking me to mock what matters most to me. My, my land, my worship, my family. You, you know what? What is my skill of my hands to play? What is my voice to sing compared to my sorrow, compared to my anger? Which gets us to verse 7. Remember, Lord, he's praying. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. And here we go again. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. When Babylon sweeps through Israel, taking Jerusalem, ransacking the nation, destroying the cities, taking men and, and women and children into captivity, what, what apparently takes place is that the Edomites, who would have been the, the neighbors to the Israelites, they cheer on Babylon, take them down. And maybe the, the psalmist, he's, he's wrestling with that and he's remembering his wife and his kids. And now they're saying to him as he sits on the river in Babylon, sing us a song that you used to sing to your kids at their birthday party. Sing us, sing us a love poem that you used to write to your wife on your anniversary. It's the picture of someone slaughtered your family in front of you and then said, sing us a happy song. And your response might be, okay, you want a song? This is when I'll be happy. My question is now, do you understand a little bit of the anger behind such a shocking statement? When I read Psalm 137, I have come to learn that we shouldn't be too quick to condemn people who speak shocking words, even to God, in the middle of shocking circumstances. We shouldn't be too quick to condemn. I think this psalm gives evidence that that's okay. So let's think about our world. How about we think about our world this week? People are angry. I'm angry. I am grateful for and pray for often 
Those who serve by helping to keep peace in our land. And on occasion, when those who do wrong take the life of an officer, it makes me angry. It makes me angry. And then there are weeks like this when we see very, very visual, right, someone who wears the badge, who, who uh, appears to act in injustice in, in towards someone. And come on, I get that because I, I, I have to hear stories of preachers who at times do the same thing. But to, but to act in such a way, it makes me angry. And to see our brothers mistreated and to see lives lost, that makes me angry. And then on top of that, to watch as people respond, and many times the response and the destruction that comes from the response isn't even from people who care most about the victim. It sometimes is just people who prey on such moments. They don't love that person. They're just looking to cause greater division where there's already division. And that makes me angry. This is a picture, a part of the anger that I think much of our land feels this week. And then if we throw on top of that, I mean, just reasons that any of us personally might deal with anger, conversations that didn't go the way that we hoped that they would go, and it makes us angry, actions that somebody takes that that suddenly affects our lives in a tremendous way, and it it, it makes us angry. The constant sequence of disappointments, oh, oh, there we go again, or or, had to say that, didn't you, Or, or sometimes it's had to do that, didn't I, and I'm angry. And when anger rises up for whatever reason, the question is how do we work through it in such a way to not so absolutely be consumed by it? In this psalm, that is a, I mean, it is odd, right? Some of you have never, ever seen Psalm 137. There are three simple yet powerful steps that I think we can learn from this psalm. Here's the first one. When it comes to anger, own it. Don't zone it. What I mean is own it, recognize it, acknowledge it, call it what it is. You have to own your anger or your anger will own you. Otherwise, we are all just capable of zoning it out. We can do it. We can put it away as though it's not there. I mean, in our culture, think about all the possible ways to hide our anger, to mask our anger. From Netflix to movies to gaming to sports to food to alcohol to texting to books to blogs, you name it. We can occupy in such a way that there are millions of ways to avoid our anger, but it always surfaces later. The very first step that we see in the psalmist is he simply owns it. He's angry and he's not pretending like he's not. He's he's just angry. 
Come on, so, some of you know what it's like for, for someone to want to wish you would fail, a, a boss, a, a co-worker, a, a spouse, e- even a child. They, it, are you okay with those kinds of circumstances? No, you're not. It makes you angry. And everybody tends to, 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 to display that anger either hot or cold. For some people, it, it, it burns hot. It's, it's actions that are explosive and they are clear. But, but for other people, there is an anger, but it burns cold. It doesn't show up in shouting matches or kickboxing. It looks more like the silent treatment or just shutting down or ghosting or avoiding. But either way, when we don't own our anger, when we don't call it what it is, even if it's a cold burning anger, it is still a fire that is highly destructive It becomes cutting words. It becomes an unvoiced compliment. It becomes a glare, an eye roll, gossip. But it's anger seeping out. And come on, most of us have had those moments where because of the anger that we've tried to to push away and not own, something slips out of our mouth and and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I didn't mean that, right? I, I was just joking. But the truth is, no, we weren't. No, we weren't. The the truth is we, we were angry. And here's what we got to regulate. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. It's even possible to be angry and not sin, the Bible tells us. But before you can determine whether to use your anger for good or for ill, it starts by owning it. Own it, don't zone it, and be specific. I'm angry about what? Second, What we see from the psalmist is not just own it, don't zone it, but I call it pray it, don't spray it. Because you got to recognize Psalm 137 is a prayer. He's talking to God here. I mean, he's pouring it all. This is a heart-filled prayer. Yet the truth of the matter is, come on, if we're honest, when we read that line from verse 9 about babies being dashed against the rocks, that, that, that kind of makes us uncomfortable. But he's not making that up out of nowhere. He's not just pulling words from nowhere. That's where his life is at. This is what's really happening to him. And and so he's angry and he's just saying, God, I'm telling you, I want an eye for an eye. I want a tooth for a tooth. I want an infant for an infant. What they did to my kids, I want the same thing to be done to theirs. My question is, how comfortable are you praying that way? How comfortable are you hearing somebody pray that way, unfiltered, uncensored, just just taking all of your pure rage to God? Eugene Peterson has a a great book on the Psalms, and he talks about in that book how some people only want what he calls pseudo-prayers. Pseudo prayers. Pseudo prayers are just simple, nice, neat little prayers that make you feel good, reduce the tension, lower the stress. Pseudo prayers. Here's what he says Psalm prayers, and he's talking about the Psalms. Psalm prayers, however, enter into the way things are and finds that the way things are is pretty bad. People who want to be spiritually soothed to sleep don't pray the Psalms at least not in their entirety. 
come on, we're good at this, right? There are worship songs built off of one phrase that we find from a psalm that, that brings joy and it, it, it's celebratory, right? It's a lot easier to sing about remembering Zion than it is to deal with infants dashed against the rocks, right? That's like the third verse of the hymns we, we, we would sing that you always leave the third verse out. I'm saying our editing and censoring of the Psalms sometimes is an indication of our editing and censoring of our own prayer life, our own emotion, and sometimes it is entirely disingenuous, it is, it is dishonest, and it reveals sometimes an unwillingness to face our anger, face our pain, face our grief. And all this talk about churches meeting again and you know, steps we're going to take, like wearing a mask. There's, there's a meme uh, that, that's been out there that maybe you've seen this meme. Here's how it reads. Some of you are mad about wearing a mask to church, but you've been doing it for years. Ouch. Ouch. But that's exactly what Peterson is talking about. He, he's saying, look, sometimes we just put on the mask for other people. Sometimes we even put on the mask for God, but there's gotta be a better way. And I'm telling you that Psalm 137, as awkward as it feels, is a part of that better way. Because listen to me, God is a safer place to take my venom than to take it to people. God is a safer place to take the venom of my anger than to take it to people. And if I don't pray, in a sense, if I don't pray evil on those that I'm hurt by, then I am quicker to spray that evil. But, but then it comes out like gossip. It comes out like cutting remarks. Or sometimes it comes out like a punch. But when I lay it all before God, then God begins to do something inside of me, one he flips the script <clears throat> that instead of anger owning me, now he's helping me to start to own my anger. But, but second, it's including God in on the conversation. And when you begin to bring that to God, he has the opportunity to speak into my anger and to give me perspective. So when I feel that anger rising up in me, my first response needs to be, okay, God, this is what's making me angry. This is what's going on. And then that leads to God, what am I supposed to do with this? I own it. And then I pray it. And when you begin to do those two things, you begin to implement really where we're going with this. When it comes to anger, attach it to God. Attach it to God. Here's all I mean by that. I struggled with what word to put there. The key for my anger is like everything else in my life, it needs to be constantly connected to God in the sense that I need God to rule my anger. I, I need him giving me the guidance and the, and the instruction. What, what do I do with this, God? Now listen, when you start to attach your anger to God, sometimes God simply wants you to calm down. Stop. Take a breath. And it's as though God's saying, I want you to leave that with me. 
And the truth is, he is a God of justice. Sometimes that justice seems slow to us, but, but it is always sure. You can entrust it to him. He will work it out and all will answer one day for everything they have done. He sees it all. Sometimes he says, I want you to leave it with me. But then there are other times that, that you, you, are, you are owning your anger and you talk to God about it and, and he allows that anger to remain. But in allowing that anger to remain, he adjusts your perspective so that then you can actually leave with God from where you are in order to step into circumstances that allows you to begin to work toward justice where you see injustice taking place, both to leave with God everything that's angering you and to leave with God knowing that he is with you to help you act toward justice. In the sense, anger can become an invitation for us to know the heart of God. And when we do, our anger then becomes an echo of the anger that God feels over the brokenness and injustice around us all the time. I wanna just read another quote to you that I found in studying this week. It's a guy by the name of Brad Jersek. Here's, here's how he says, he says, I have come to love praying the imprecatory Psalms, right? Not because I believe God will answer them by smashing teeth and babies, but because in his presence, all my malice comes into light and must be cleansed from me by the washing of his mercy. Listen to this. He says, of course, as a nonviolent and terribly polite Canadian and lover of the Sermon on the Mount, there's no malice in me anyway, except wait. Why do faces come to my mind when I read those prayers? Why when I read those prayers to all of a sudden there are images, there are people that he says they serve to out me, but they do so in God's court such that I must see whenever I judge, I am not in the judgment seat at all. I am in the defendant's dock. Judgment begins with the household of God, meaning when I think I'm assessing and condemning someone, the spotlight is not on them at all, but on me. And what comes out of my mouth at that point is a witness against me. In that moment, I, I let go of justifications and simply cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm going to admit to you that I have found the same thing. That when I honestly lay my anger before God, he begins to do something inside of me that gives me a perspective that's different. And the beginning of that perspective is step out of the judgment seat because that's his chair. And I suddenly began to realize that sometimes I've been seeing the situation wrongly. Sometimes I've been trying to control what was never mine to control. Sometimes the reason for my anger isn't even for a right purpose. But let's just get real honest. 
Some of us are afraid to attach our anger to God because we're afraid he won't deal with it like I want it dealt with. I don't want to attach my anger to God because here's what I want and I know God's not going to do it this way. But this is the way that I try to respond to, to those who feel that way. Come on, have you actually ever read the book of Revelation? Have you actually ever read how this whole story ends? Because I'm telling you, one day all all will stand in judgment before the throne of God and he will lay down a verdict in each and every one. Yes, that there is coming a day, no more sickness, no more racism, no more violence, no more corruption. God's gonna do that, but this is also what he's gonna do. God is for justice and one day everyone will give an account. That means... You can leave it with God. Because sometimes that is the best response. I'm going to say most of the time that's the best response. I think I could deal with it better, but I can't. But sometimes there's also another angle. And we saw it several weeks back in the book of Amos. I'm sure you remember. From the book of Amos, he says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. God says, stop singing to me. You're gathering in my name. Instead, let justice roll like waters. In other words, he's saying, you're all proud because you're coming together, you're meeting together, you're singing songs together, but what I'm waiting on is for you together to step outside of your box and start to love the people who are being treated unjustly around you. I'm waiting for your love to start to look like mine so stop just singing your songs and stop just being most concerned about meeting together and I want you to step with me into the injustice and I will show you how to love like I love but if you don't do that that anger that you have it'll actually become a force of destruction instead of healing. God is for justice, but it's gotta be done the right way. Now maybe you wonder, does God really care? Does he really care? So this is where I wanna wrap it for you. Scripture says that it's Palm Sunday and Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is the, the, the whole story where they're crying Hosanna, right? He's come to save them, but, but they've missed it because they want Jesus to look a certain way. They're angry at the oppression of, the, of, the, of Rome, and they want Jesus to save them from that Roman oppression, but, but they, they're totally missing why he's there. And so on this day, they're, they're crying Hosanna, but by the time the week is over, they're going to cry out, crucify him, and they're going to hang Jesus on a cross. And Jesus knew that was coming. But I want you to listen to what happens on this ride into the city. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Listen to this language. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here's the picture. Jesus is riding into the city of Jerusalem. And a part of what he sees is something that's going to take place several years from then. It, would, it was going to be the year 70 AD when, when again, J Jerusalem is just going to experience destruction. And here's what he knows. All these people around him who are shouting Hosanna, by the end of the week, they're going to crucify him. Why? Because all they care about is overthrowing their enemy. All they care about is the hatred that they have for the Romans. They are totally missing the point that Jesus came to save us not just from an oppressive situation but also from the oppressive power of our sin but here's what I want you to see Jesus words in this moment knowing the cross is coming is not well that serves them right it's not you're gonna get what's coming to you. He's not vengeful, he's not spiteful. He's weeping. He's weeping over a city that's gonna crucify him by week's end. He's weeping over a people who soon will cheer for his death. And he weeps over them and then he dies for them. And he dies for me. And he dies for you. Here's what I'm saying. When you start to own your anger, and then you start to pray it to God, attaching it to God, I challenge you to let this picture of Jesus be the visual of what it's supposed to look like that our anger for justice would be godly, that it would be like Jesus, and that it would be fueled with the tears of compassion. This is the shape of true justice, that Jesus would make possible for all, a restoration that is available for everyone. The victim and the abuser. It fights for all. And it is not blinded by our own wounds because our wounds are healed by Jesus. So that what we are left with in our anger attached to him and together we move forward, what we are left with is tears. But it's the kind of tears that bring healing to the world until the day that Jesus wipes all those tears.
tears away. God, today I thank you for a really, really odd song that you allowed to be put into your word that, that God, today we could learn. There are some of us today that need to own. We need to own our anger. God, maybe it's connected to what's going on to the world around us. Maybe it's connected to some very specific circumstances in our families, in our work, in our, uh, what were friendships, God, but we need to own it. And today I'm asking you to help us to be honest because if we don't own it, we know you tell us it's gonna own us. So God, today some of us need to begin to pray it. Will you give us the courage to realize that the greatest place to bring the venom of our anger is to you? That you understand and that you love us. And that if we can just continue to attach our anger to you, God, you're either going to tell us to leave it with you and do a work of peace in our heart to know that you will settle all accounts. Or God, for some of us right now, there are some circumstances that perhaps you're telling us to leave with you, to step into circumstances where there is injustice, where people are hurt, and God, we get to be a part of demonstrating your love. God, in all of it, may we understand the tears, the tears of compassion. until one day you wipe all those tears away. God, today, may we understand who you are and who we are in light of you to love a world around us. In the name of Jesus, we ask it.